Welcome to Compassion Collective. This episode is brought to you by your hosts, Michaela Swee and Susan Murray, co-founders of Compassion Collective. Music by singer-songwriter Michael Shines. Hi, Michaela. Hi, Susan. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? Same. I'm good. I'm good. I'm really excited about our topic today. Um, We wanted to take an entire episode to do a deep dive into the topic of worthiness. Because this is something that often comes up in our discussions um, around compassion and self-compassion. Sometimes we'll hear folks say that they don't feel worthy of Mm. self-compassion or of compassion from others. And so we wanted to really dedicate time and attention to what contributes to feelings of unworthiness, how we can start to shift our perception of our own worthiness. Um, And I want to first bring attention to the fact that we've we've named this episode Uncovering Worthiness. Um, We could have gone a lot of different directions with it in terms of um, maybe like cultivating worthiness or, uh, you know, becoming worthy. I don't know. What what are some other kinds of thoughts that you had had? Those those were the two words that came to mind too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But actually, I think both of those um, convey like starting at a place of lack or a deficit and like working towards that and building it instead of really actually doing the work of deconstructing beliefs. Um, that so that we can see what is already there that mm-hmm. that the our worthiness our inherent worthiness is already present um right and it's really about our perception of it that needs to change or shift in some circumstances i think that that's spot on and beautifully said so this episode is really going to be about uncovering what already is what's already there, coming into contact in a different way with what each of us already has as a living human being. Right. So I wanted to start out with a quote from Jack Cornfield, who is a meditation and mindfulness um, expert. And he says, if your compassion does not include yourself, it is not complete. And I love Mm. that quote. Mm. Um, I love that quote because it reminds us that we are just as much a part of um, kind of common humanity. There's nothing that separates us from deserving compassion. Um, And in fact, if we are to really work on a compassion practice, it needs to include ourselves. Mm-hmm. I think that this reminds me of, of when we talk to, to folks about the three flows of compassion, you know, compassion flowing out to others, compassion flowing in, receiving compassion from others, and then 
directing compassion to the self from the self, self-compassion. A lot of people talk about how, and again, this is not for everyone, but for a lot of people, it feels easier to be compassionate with other people who are mm-hmm. suffering or having a hard time. Um, and for many people, it's much, 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 much harder. That self-compassion flow is much harder. But I like this quote because it really kind of gets to the, again, the, the point that that we have these three flows and they all make up compassion, right? But just by going about the world, acting compassionately toward other people, but ignoring or neglecting ourselves, right? That's, that's not it. Mm-hmm. It's not complete. It's not complete. Um, yeah. And as, as you're talking, I'm thinking about, you know, some of the barriers that come up for folks in bringing compassion towards themselves or in, um, accepting it from others. And I think sometimes it can be as simple as it is not part of their practice, right? It's just new. And so that's a muscle worth building, but there isn't really like a strong resistance to it, right? It might just Mm -hmm. be like, okay, this is a new thing for me. How can I incorporate this into my life? Um, For some, it could be that in order to direct compassion, you have to really recognize and maybe sit with some suffering, in yourself. And so maybe there's, there's some, um, avoidance of that experiential avoidance. So it's hard to get to the self-compassion part if you're denying that you're even having, or you're unaware of your own struggle or pain. Right. Right. So that can be a barrier to self-compassion for sure. Another big barrier that I hear often, especially working with folks with eating disorders, um, on the day to day, this is what I hear is that, people will will say, I don't feel like I deserve it. I don't feel worthy mm-hmm. of offering myself kindness or grace or compassion or love. Yeah. And let me say too, that I think that is trans-diagnostic. Oh, t- absolutely. You know, that yeah. it's you know, most of your work is, is with eating disorders. I do a lot of trauma-focused work and the same, same, same beliefs come up there too. So I think there's something deep and pervasive, right? That, that impacts a lot of people, right? With very different backgrounds and histories and things that, that folks struggle with, yet there can be this very common, common sense of unworthiness, or I don't deserve care or love for myself from other people. Yeah. And, um, I just want to say that I can personally relate to that experience. Mm-hmm. For many, many years of my life, I did not feel worthy of love um, from others. I certainly didn't feel as though I could offer love to myself. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a very novel concept with with compassion-focused therapy. And I think compassion-focused therapy really, really was a paradigm shift for me in this way. Um, I had kind of given up on that changing, (laughs) you know, I really didn't, I wasn't even seeking out ways to change it. I really just didn't think it was something that could change. Um, and came upon CFT mostly because, um, you know, I was interested in bringing this to, to some of the work that I was doing with my clients, I thought that they could benefit from self-compassion. In the process, I had quite an inner transformation, um, which just brought home, you know, the power of this of this therapy to me and, and really emboldened me to want to do this work. But um, I think 
one of the key pieces of CFT that helped to shift things for me initially was really the recognition that so many people, as you were just saying, struggle Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. this very thing. I thought I was alone in that. I thought I was like everyone else could access this, could experience this, could take in love, could give it to themselves with ease. Um, And there was something wrong with me, which just then was like this added layer of shame and judgment. Um, And yeah, just hearing that this is a really common thing that people struggle with helped me to feel not alone in that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think what you're talking about, the piece of sort of um, shame being at the root of all of this, I think is huge. And I think I spend a lot of time thinking about um, like the, the valence of language, the power that language has. And I think we all relate to different words or labels, right? Like there, I think for me, for example, um, it's interesting, like rather than unworthy being the word that I gravitate toward for me, you know, many times in my life, especially times when shame for me has been more activated for whatever reasons, um, for different reasons. I tend to go to this place of like, I'm too much. So rather than I'm lacking or I'm unworthy, it's this place of like, I'm too much. And that makes me different. That makes me unworthy, right? Of love or of being understood or of being accepted. So it's not like a, I'm not enough. It's like, I'm, I, I feel like I'm too much. Inside. And that doesn't, that's not helpful. <laughs> that doesn't feel better, you know, because, right. because that also, that still feels like this, um, the sense of like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm different. The reason I say this is just because I think there are a lot of different terms and words and core belief, you know, language that we can put to core beliefs that we hold about ourselves mm-hmm. that sound different, but a lot of these things are about the same thing. Right. Right. Yeah. And effectively end up, you know, causing some of the same struggles. Yeah. And suffering. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Another thing about CFT that was really useful for me personally in shifting um, my beliefs around worthiness was spending time focused on um, origins of shame, Mm. spending a lot of time thinking about things in my childhood that contributed to my sense of feeling separate from others or unworthy or like there was something wrong with me. Um, First, it's generally easier to look back on your child self and and have access compassion for for that version of you i think um can i can i say something about that i think you're right and we do a lot of that work in in compassion focused therapy we do a lot of work in in thinking back to past Mm -hmm. versions of ourselves earlier versions of ourselves thinking back to earlier times in our life and I think for some people, maybe even people listening right now who have never done that before, one of the ways we can start to do this is, and, and I, I guess I'm feeling like I want to emphasize that it may take time for someone to kind of come into contact with this, even an image of a child version of oneself. But w- one way to do this that can be helpful is just to sort of take time, slow down and think about maybe a time in your life earlier in life when you remember 
having a really hard time. Like if you can kind of put an age, a number to that, and then begin to start thinking, okay, like what was around, what was, what was my context at the time? Like what was around me at the time? What grade was I in? Who was my teacher? You know, who were the friends around me or the family, important family members around me at that time? What was going on in, in my family maybe at that time? I think there are a lot of ways we can begin to sort of enrich that mm-hmm. image that we have of, of maybe a younger version of ourselves mm-hmm. going through a hard time, struggling. Um, I, I just give that as extra, an extra kind of sense of how to maybe get in touch with what we're talking about when we say a younger version of ourselves. Yeah. yeah and actually powerful. sometimes it can be powerful to also like look at a photograph to even, to be able to actually see like how tiny, you know, you, you were at that age that, that was very powerful for me. I think sometimes like it was easy to sort of superimpose this image of adult Michaela, onto child Michaela, but actually going back and looking at some photographs and seeing like that tiny girl, Mm -hmm. it's very hard to hold the same judgment and criticism. And so, yeah. And one of the tenets of, of CFT is that a lot of those like contextual factors, things that were going on in your childhood were not even within your control. They were not of your choosing. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was really helpful for me to reflect on because I had taken on an enormous amount of responsibility mm-hmm. for things that were fully out of my control. Yeah. And not yours to be responsible for, especially little, I don't know, what age, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10-year-old you. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. So... I think that that helped to shift things for me. Um, Like if a lot of my sense of if shame or unworthiness came from things that I could suddenly get a little bit of distance from, like, oh, first of all, a lot of people struggle with this feeling. Second of all, I didn't choose a lot of these um, contextual factors that led me to feel that way. Um, So yeah, just getting a little bit of kind of new space or wiggle room around some of these ideas that had been so um, locked in, like solid for me for so long. Yeah. I think one other thing that's helpful for me too, just to add on to what you've already said, which I agree with, um, is I often try to think back Again, and, and it is, I'm a, I think a part of me is very visual, so it is helpful to have sort of an image of myself. And mm-hmm. I always go back to like an image of, um, for whatever reason, like seven or eight-year-old me, nine-year-old me. Um, but, but remembering too that like as kids, right, with only like seven years on the planet, seven years of life under our belt, or sometimes even younger than that, like we are doing our best with what we're given, right? And if we think about how like our identities form, how our self-concept forms, right? So much of that is through what we observe in the world around us, in our family system, right? And the messages that we're taking in, direct messages and also indirect messages, right? Like things that are explicitly, blatantly told to us, ways to be, 
don't be this, be that you're too much this, you're not, whatever it is. Um, But then also like indirect messages, all of these sort of nonverbal signals and and behaviors that we're watching and parents or primary caregivers or important people around us. Um, And just having compassion, I think, for being that young and new to the world and to relationships and trying to do the best we can in and knowing that like, of course, maybe we responded in certain ways or or acted you know, reacted in certain ways, or of course we develop certain thoughts. Like if this is kind of how things went and how, like mm-hmm. how, how, you know, how could I have developed a different way of thinking right. at that time, given my, you know, so I think right. it's helpful to I go back also to remembering like how much as small people, you know, as young people were observing and absorbing Right. And then trying to like respond and adapt accordingly to within a context. We don't within have, a context and constraints. Right. We don't have access to like all of the possible ways of being and living. We just have actually what we're seeing and what's being told to us. And that's really powerful to acknowledge. Um, another thing, just as, as you were talking about, you know, this is the time when your self concept is forming. And though I will say there's, you know, part of why I I love CFT is I believe in a lot of plasticity around self-concept. So I I Mm, think mm -hmm. that there's room to change this, but when it is forming in early life, it's also forming at a time when we do not mentally have really the capacity for complexity in our thought processes. So... And you're, you're you, literally like, we don't have the brain. <laughs> yeah. Our no, brains exactly. are, yeah. And so we think, you know, as, as children and little ones in very black and white terms, such that if you do notice, oh, there's this thing about me that maybe, you know, is not going to be viewed as positively by my peers or by my um, family or whatever. There is a tendency, I think, for some to, once there is a little bit of um, bad, quote unquote, Mm. that can take over the whole self-concept because there isn't room. It can sort of spoil the whole self-concept because there isn't room for both the good and bad. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And that, what you just said that's characterological shame that's trait shame Mm -hmm. that's how shame becomes this pervasive chronic thing that people can carry with them for quite some time that becomes so ingrained on a deeper level this global sense of badness or or brokenness or lesser than or but it just I guess it makes sense that like it's that it happens at a time when your mind cannot challenge that or hold like, oh, wait, there are these other great things about me. It's just like as soon as there's like a scent of a, you know, negative or whatever that can kind of sweep in because there's only categories of good and bad. And so Mm -hmm. where is it going to go? So I think that that's just really important as adults to kind of take back and take your power and say, okay, I'm going to really work on holding complexity and then bring my own self into that um, 
bring up my self-concept and see, you know, in what ways am I allowing for complexity and which ways am I sort of continuing to hold black and white thinking around, yeah. around myself. And I think that, that like when people use the term reparenting, like I'm doing reparenting work or I'm, mm-hmm. that's kind of what we're, that's what we're talking about here. Right. Because if, and even that word parent, like the idea of a parent is someone who can hold the complexity, you know, ideally. And, and I think many people would say that, that they grew up in families where maybe they had parents who couldn't. Right. But ideally, like an ideal parent, an ideal nurturer, right, is someone who can hold the complexity and be able to say, okay, maybe a behavior, you know, was not very kind or, you know, not very nice. Right. And like, that doesn't make you a bad person. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of times when people are talking about doing reparenting work, they're actually talking about taking their adult selves and this ability that they have now more of as adult people, right. To go back and work and kind of chip away at and rework some of those really rigid all or nothing types of thoughts and beliefs. Exactly. So up until this point, we've been focusing a bit on more of the cognitive pieces of of this um, struggle with worthiness or unworthiness and how, how we might shift those on a cognitive level, right, in terms of our thoughts and, and beliefs. Um, but I think that we should focus on where I think a lot of change can take place, which is on the behavioral level. Um, so I do think it's very important to recognize that other people struggle with this. Many other people struggle with this and then to, to spend time reflecting on your childhood and where some of these beliefs maybe got set in stone for you, um, or adolescence. It's not, Mm -hmm. you know, exclusive to childhood. Um, but then when we're thinking about like how to really start to move, this belief on the day-to-day, I have started to think about this thing. I'm borrowing it from economics, this rule, the 80-20 rule. I think I shared this with you recently, Mm -hmm. Michaela, that your financial health is determined 20% by your knowledge of finances and and what kind of you should be doing and 80% by your behavior the decisions that you actually make, how you use your money or don't. Mm. Um, And I've started to think that that's a useful kind of way to start to think about um, even psychological change. Many of us can spend a lot of time intellectualizing things um, or, you know, reading all the things, all the self-help things or, you know, right. And, and thinking like, huh, I wonder why I'm not feeling any different in this particular domain. Right. Or I if still I could, feel stuck. If I could just figure it out, like if I could just figure out why, right? Like right, right. it's all about the head, that. the mind. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so I think, you know, even like doubling down our efforts in the behavioral space um, with the knowledge that behavior is what often can shift our beliefs and our um, emotions. You can't sort of like wait until you um, believe something to do something, right? So like in this case, it's you can't always wait until you feel worthy of self-compassion in order to do it. Sometimes you've got to do it and it's going to feel uncomfortable and maybe it's even going to feel 
inauthentic, um, foreign at first in order to have the shift. So I think for me, and this is mm-hmm. not an exhaustive list, but here are three things that I think are have been really valuable for me behaviorally in shifting this. The first is asking myself, what do I need right now? That's like, you know, mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. a behavior, right? So checking in with myself, mm-hmm. what do I need right now? Because that signals to your mind, I'm valuing myself enough to ask that. Mm-hmm. So over time of doing that, you can kind of move into a new place of how you value yourself, how you, you think about your self-worth. Um, the other thing that I was going to say, and this will vary so much from situation to situation, um, but getting really concrete about how you would act if you valued yourself, if you felt that you were worthy and deserving. So this could be like you have a situation at work and you think, you know, you apply that question of like, how would I act if I had all of the self-worth that I'm working towards, right? Realizing and recognizing in myself or in a relationship, how would I act differently? Is there anything I would actually do differently if I believed this? And then doing those things. Yeah. And can I say, if that feels too hard, like if it feels too hard to do that kind of abstract imagining of if I were, you know, if Mm -hmm. I did value myself, how would I behave or act or respond here? We can also think about first, is there someone in my life who I can, who I regard as a very kind of self-compassionate person, someone who I Mm -hmm. look at and I'm like, they really, they do value themselves. How would they Mm -hmm. respond in this situation or act in this situation, right? right? So sometimes the same way we've talked about this and, and, you know, sometimes it's easier to start with someone else. Totally. um, Right. And, and that flow of, of compassion, right. Compassion toward other people, or it it, it can be easier to start there. And then exactly what you were saying to put the, the end goal is coming back to the self and saying, okay, now I'm going to do that thing. Yeah. And it's in the doing over time that you can build up a new sense of yourself, a Mm. new way of regarding yourself and belief. It's really remarkable. So worth experimenting with. And it may, again, feel a little bit funny at first. Um, And so it's it's like building a muscle, right? You've got to continue to practice. Um, It takes time. So I wouldn't try it once and say, oh, that felt weird. And, you know, <laughs> never doing that again didn't didn't change everything. No, it's going to, you know, if you think about how long it took to develop some of the beliefs that we have, mm-hmm. you better believe it's going to take a while to change them. Mm-hmm. And I think actually in moments where we take risks and then it's it's hard, it's challenging, and maybe situations didn't go the way that we wanted them to go, it's easy to go back to that child self we were talking about earlier where it's like good, bad, like, oh, that was a failure. That, that was awful. That was, look, see, I tried this. Look what happened. Like, right. Right. Like, and that's that very rigid kind of all or nothing thinking. So what would it be like in those moments to hold the complexity of, Mm -hmm. you know, Oh, okay. A lot. There's a lot that came up there that was really hard. Like, and I did that. And what, you know, did that offer anything? Did that? That's it. It's not even about the outcome. It's about the doing it's in the doing and, and, 
changing your behavioral kind of repertoire. Yeah. And habits patterning. Mm -hmm. I will say though, I think that that's really hard for people to take attention and value away from the outcome. We we're very Mm -hmm. outcomes focused, you know, and I think that tends to be how we evaluate things. Like did this work? Does it, can you judge, can the outcome be, did I engage in the behavior or not? Mm -hmm. Right. So maybe shifting what the outcome actually is. If we do want something to evaluate and judge and, you know, consider something successful, it's really more about like, did did I try this thing? Mm -hmm. That's hard for me. The other thing I would say, third thing I would say that has been really useful in shifting my perception of worthiness came very unexpectedly. Um, We were at a CFT retreat And one of the exercises that we had to do was to walk around this room of like, I don't know, how many people were there? There had to have been at least, I would say, maybe 120. Okay, okay. Probably felt like even more. Way up. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) A thousand people. Um, And so the whole exercise was so simple in its instructions and was so challenging and powerful. Um, the exercise was to walk around and you couldn't speak, but you had to make eye contact with other people, with everyone you saw. And I don't know if this was explicit or not. You'll have to remind me of just like holding them in care or Mm -hmm. like having like a compassionate look. Mm -hmm. And it, it shows the power of just even that right? That compassionate right. look. You're not even saying anything, but you're holding someone in, in kind of love and positive regard and right. Is that- yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was, it, we were, we were guided toward paying attention to our facial expressions, our body language, our posturing, mm-hmm. like the speed at which we were walking. There was a lot about the physicality. Right. And when I tell you that I cried this entire exercise, to be seen, I didn't, I didn't have to prove my worth. I didn't have to do anything. People just were looking at me, looking into my eyes and showing me care and compassion. Mm-hmm. It struck some nerve in me that I think had been maybe buried since childhood was such vulnerability was so hard for me to hold people's gaze and to accept it, to accept what they were offering. And I bring this up because I think it, it points to a process that is really important here, that being seen and being cared for and loved, accepting compassion in that space, that is an interaction that can change the way that you experience yourself and how you view yourself. Mm. And what is so tricky about shame 
is that you get this message that there's something wrong with me, right? Early on, whatever it is. I'm unlovable. I'm unworthy. I'm not deserving. I'm too much. Whatever. I'm not enough, right? There's something wrong with me. So in order to win belonging or win, you know, achieve kind of what you want, which is to connect and to feel like you're worthy of love, you go out and you strive to achieve all of these things, or you try to manage your appearance and control other people's perceptions of you in so many different ways. And then Mm -hmm. the irony of it is when someone does try to see you and love you Mm -hmm. and says, you know, I love this person, you're like, you don't even know who I am. Yeah. You don't feel like you deserve it because it doesn't feel like an authentic representation because you've been trying to manage this image. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Or people can also could also go to the thought too of like, oh, you like this person? Wow. Then if you really saw the real me, the true me, like you, you would not like that. Yeah. And so then that kind of perpetuates that, you know. Exactly. Which is the, this is the irony of like this whole thing is that you, you, shame is maybe in some ways trying to push you towards your value of wanting connection and love. There is, it, there is something adaptive in shame, right? It's saying like, oh, I'm not going to belong. I'm not going to fit in in this way. And so then you might overcompensate. And the irony is that then you get into a, a way of striving or a way of being in the world where you actually are further and further away from your goal of authentic connection. Mm-hmm. And so dropping all of that, that whole effort and allowing yourself to be seen and loved just as you are mm. is a really powerful way to get out of that cycle and that kind of trap. Yeah. It, it feels like a reworking of your DNA almost in a sense. Yeah. It's like a, on a molecular level. <laughs> on a molecular like Yeah, exactly. changing. Right. Exactly. Exercise. Yeah. Exactly. Um, it really feels like a rewiring is happening in those mm-hmm. moments. I had a very powerful experience um, the other night. Uh, I was at kind of like a gathering to celebrate um, a friend who – just got a really exciting kind of offer, which is going to take them to another place, another geographic location. And um, we were there to gather and celebrate this accomplishment and to say goodbye and all that. And someone there suggested the exercise of kind of going around and saying um, what we're grateful for about this person and what we love about this person. And I wasn't prepared to to do that. I wasn't expecting that that we were going to do that. Um, And I've always had trouble crying when other people aren't crying. Mm. Like if other people are crying around me, I can cry with them. But if I'm going to be the first to cry, to start the cry, that is really... Yeah, if I'm going to be the only person crying, even if that's just for a short period of time, like crying alone in front of other people, for me has always felt very, very, very scary, very vulnerable, very scary. And I, 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 my whole body clams up and kind of seizes around that. It's like, no, like all the holding that I'm trying to do to not go there. Mm. 
So we were going around the table and when it got to me, I all of a sudden just was like plain and simple hit with grief. Like I, you know, w- what this loss is going to, I mean, I'm so excited for this this friend and, and what she's going on to do, but all of a sudden I was hit by how much I'm going to miss her and, and also just hit by what the friendship has meant to me. And, and I started crying completely, not by choice, <laughs> not by choice. And I was the first one to cry. And I had this profound experience where like, I didn't, my body didn't seize. I didn't clench and tense and react around it or try to like stop myself, which by the way is always unsuccessful anyway, but I still have that like automatic impulse to do it. Um, But I didn't like my body, my muscles stayed relaxed and I cried and I noticed, you know, like I, and what I was sharing about what I was grateful for, I just had to pause because I, there was a moment with how emotional I was, I couldn't really get words out. Mm -hmm. And so I just kind of paused there and like, didn't feel rushed to bottle it all up and get it together to say my next words. I just like, just, I was just there with it, Mm -hmm. with my experience of it. And then I naturally got to a place where I could say something else. And what I also was aware of in this moment is instead of just being so hyper-focused and judgmental, self-critical of myself, my attention was actually more outward on the group. And I noted, like I actually heard in real time, a couple of people, you know, say like, oh, and it wasn't like a pity. It was like, oh my gosh, I relate to this. Mm -hmm. And then I actually looked up at one point and looked at faces and saw other wet eyes, you know, and, and it just was this really, I, I think it's it's what we're talking about right now. It was sort of like, okay, I'm showing up authentically in this moment with the sadness yeah. and the emotion that I'm holding and feeling. Right. And I'm kind of showing up in a way that instead of trying to bottle it all back up again quickly and suppress it, it's just out. Like I'm letting it out. And there was something that just felt so viscerally liberating mm-hmm. about that. Right. And where I walked out of that interaction and, you know, I could have felt embarrassment or shame, but it's interesting. I didn't. What I actually felt was pride in myself yeah. for just being able to be honestly vulnerable. Right. Right. And it sounds like you also... I don't know if this is the right way to put it, but like gave permission to the other people around you to kind of mm. join you in that place, and um, which is really powerful. I think. Oh yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say well, what you just said is so important because we we talk about how how shame really feeds on silence, mm-hmm. like shame feeds on silence, on suppression, on bottling up, on internalizing, on aloneness. Yeah, isolation. right on isolation and the number one kind of thing that ameliorates shame is connection, right? And it, it, it is being truly seen and accepted, mm-hmm. right? And then also the moments that that, or, or the, the openness that that creates for someone else to show up in their own authenticity. And that's where right. that true connection and common humanity is. Yeah, I love that. I think that is that is the power of of some of this work. Um, I just, as you were telling the story, I just was reminded, which I'm, I feel like really attuned to this lately, of how 
truly phobic we are in our society of emotions. <laughs> it's bizarre considering like it is such a huge part of the way that our mind naturally works. Um, it's been con- like our emotions have been conserved over evolution for a reason. They, they give us so much information. They allow us points of real connection. And I think of so many times when you see people crying, trying to stifle it, trying to suppress it, um, or, you know, like I hear so many times people saying, you know, I, I would like to do this, but it's going to upset this other person. Or I would like to tell this person something, but I think I don't know what the reaction is going to cause. So also it's not just your emotional state that you're trying to maybe suppress yourself, but we're all afraid of like setting off someone else and we can't manage and handle and sit with the fact that like, yeah, people are going to have emotional reactions and experiences. And like, we, we can, we can handle that. We, we have skills that we can learn and grow to manage those things. Um, I just feel like we're, mm. we're cut off from a really, really major source of information and connection um, by operating the way that we are. And it's really out of fear. It's out of fear of not knowing mm-hmm. how to handle our own emotions, other people's emotions. And so, um, but it's to our detriment. So I'll just take my little soapbox and put that away. Um, but <laughs> maybe one day we can do a deep dive into that. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's so important. Yeah. Um, so listen, this is not an exhaustive list of how to shift one's perception around worthiness. I think everyone has an individual experience with this. Um, But hopefully there were some things in this episode that folks can take away and and think about um, more in the next few weeks um, or months, just how how can I apply this if this is an area that you struggle with. I like that. And leading again with this idea of I'm going to show up in this way and behave in this way and let the rest follow, mm-hmm. right? Rather than waiting to feel ready or waiting to feel worthy before we engage in certain ways, leading with behavior first mm-hmm. and then noticing what follows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Being open to this being kind of experimental thank you for listening to compassion collective you can visit us on the web at compassion-collective.com please also consider donating to our patreon fund at patreon.com backslash compassion collective we'll see you next time